You are listening to The Competitive Edge, a Toom podcast for lifelong learning. When we think of fat, what springs to mind might be a large slice of bacon, a chip pan, or maybe even the dread of standing on the scales in the morning. While it is something we would associate with fitness and exercise, it normally doesn't come with positive connotations. But is there perhaps more to fats than what we would traditionally think? And can some fats provide us with a special biological boost? This is John Pye, and this is The Competitive Edge. In our Schwabing studio today, we have Professor Henning Wachehager, a molecular exercise physiologist and head of Tom's Professorship of Exercise Biology. He brings a wealth of knowledge from the world of sports science, with specific interest in the molecular mechanisms by which exercise improves our fitness and health. Before joining Tom in 2016, Professor Wachehager also spent a good amount of time in the UK starting as a lecturer in sports physiology at the University of Central Lancashire before heading north to Bonnie, Scotland, where he enjoyed a number of years at both the University of Dundee and the University of Aberdeen, latterly as senior lecturer and reader. Fantastic to have you with us today. Yeah, thank you very much, John. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the podcast. The topic of Size biology, it spans a whole range of things. And maybe before we dive into the topic of fat, maybe you could give us a, a little bit more of an idea of the, the breadth of research at your professorship and indeed why it's so important to investigate. Yeah, so, so what is molecular exercise physiology? So over the years, people have had a look at humans and they studied what were the responses to exercise. And we all know if you exercise... You have health benefits, you have athletic benefits, and you have fitness benefits. And, and this explains why 11 million Germans go to gyms, why a lot of people, they cycle here in Munich, they, they jog through the parks. They do all sorts of exercise because of these performance, fitness, and health benefits. And that has been described over the years quite well. But the big question is, A, why do people vary so much in their performance and in the exercise-related health, why does it vary so much in, in the population? And the answer is genetics. And, and the traditional exercise physiologists put their head in the sand and say, oh, nothing to do with me. And there's a new generation now of people, they, they really try to understand, so hang on. So, so how much is your muscle strength, your, your speed, your jumping ability, your endurance actually inherited? How much do you have to thank my mom and dad that I have a high oxygen uptake, which is a measurement of your aerobic performance. And, and so I became intrigued by these questions. And so this is one idea. What is the genetics of all these exercise-related traits? The second thing is people also, they, they looked, okay, you train and then your body changes. You get an athletic heart, you get bigger muscles if you lift heavy weights, you get uh, the power stations of the cell, mitochondria, you get more of them if you go for a jog. But again, here the question is, it's nicely described, but what is the black box in the middle that links the exercise to then these adaptations, which is an athlete's heart, which is an improved blood metabolite so that you get fewer cardiovascular diseases. And so this intrigued me, and we really wanted to find out so what are the molecular mechanisms. 
And so this is actually what we focus in our research and doesn't extend just to what are the normal adaptations, but there is some research also showing if you exercise as a cancer patient, then the risk of dying of that cancer in some types of cancer is reduced. And also the risk of the cancer coming back is reduced. And together here in Schwabing, just around the corner at the Kinderklinik, we actually have a research project where we try to find out what are the mechanisms by which exercise has an effect on a tumor. That's fascinating. That really is fascinating. I, I love I love the imagery used there of this this black box. Like you say, there's so many obvious benefits that we might see, but without necessarily being able to explain why. And fantastic that it spreads not just in terms of in terms of physical fitness, but indeed in health. Today, though, and this is the thing, I wish we could talk about all of these topics. Today, we're actually talking about something that's maybe one of the not so obvious benefits, if you like, of physical exercise or of exercise biology, which is the rather glamorous topic of fat. And so something that in our mainstream understanding of fitness, something that we think we should be stripping ourselves of. I mean, you said yourself, 11 million Germans uh, are registered to gyms, many for the express purpose, particularly those who sign up rather guiltily after Christmas time, of stripping themselves of of body weight and and typically of, of fat. So what's, what's all the excitement about uh, in this recent research project? Yeah, so we came relatively recently to FED, and this is simply we have some preliminary uh, data together with the University of Bonn, where we put blood that was conditioned by exercise on fat cells. And we really discovered that they were switching on a program, they were generating heat, so it's called thermogenesis. And this was striking data, so we were really surprised because... In some of the people, they could really switch on this heat production by the fat cells and others not. But before I go into detail and before we expand on this, I just come back to just explain what the fat in the body is good for. There's actually a great fuel store. And uh, this was actually uh, demonstrated in Dundee at one stage. John, I ask you a question. How long can you survive without taking any food? What is a world record? The world record? Boah. Uh, if I was guessing, because I know it's it's significantly long, I think water is, what, three days and food is something like, I want to say a month. Is that is that close? No, not even remotely close. Oh, go on. So, th- so this was a subject at the University of Dundee, and he didn't eat any food. He drank water, and I think he had some vitamins or stuff like that, but no calories, and he survived for more than a year. No. So, so, so I turn this into a lecture. So the next question. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's insane. That's insane. And I like problem solving and people thinking. So uh, sorry for t- turning you into a student in my lecture. <laughs> that's absolutely fine. <laughs> and I apologize for it because this is meant to be a podcast where you ask the question, I give the answers. <laughs> <laughs> I like this reverse role though. Um, but I should also note to listeners that it's, it's not the typical Dundee diet to go not eating for, for a whole year. Yeah, Absolutely. But you tell me, how did that guy look at the beginning of the experiment? I mean, I'm not sure how he would look at the beginning, but I could imagine that if we compared, he probably looked significantly skinnier. So did he start quite large, presumably? Yeah, he was extremely obese. Okay. And this shows one of the key roles of fat. It's, it's the greatest energy store of your body. And the more fat you have on your ribs and in other places of your body, the longer you're going to survive if no energy goes into the system uh-huh. because the body burns the carbohydrate quite quickly 
but the fat is almost an unlimited store. And if you have a lot of fat in your body, you can survive for a, lot, for a long period of time. So it's really the long distance uh, uh, fuel in your body. For every gram of fat, you have nine kilocalories of energy. So it's really energy dense. And if you compare that to, to carbohydrates, carbohydrates only store four kilocalories per gram. So for the same amount of energy, you would need fewer grams of fat. So it's very energy dense. And so because you need fuel in the tank to run around in Munich and, uh, and in the mountains, which I like to do at the weekends. <laughs> but people were not very interested in fat because, you know, yeah, it's a good energy storage, so what? But fat also actually is an organ because fat can produce hormones that go around the body and tell other organs what to do. This is what hormones do. And also one function which was discovered, well, it was discovered a long time ago, but the research interest in it is quite acute at the moment because people discovered fat can produce also heat. And so there are different types of fat in your body. So there's a white fat, which is essentially your fuel tank. So this is where you have the energy. But then there's so-called brown fat, and the brown fat has these power stations of the body termed mitochondria. And in the brown fat, these mitochondria are unique because normally the mitochondria produce another fuel which the muscles can use and the other organs can use, and it's termed ATP. But the mitochondria in the brown fat, they're unique because they have a bit of a shortcut. So there's a unique protein termed UCP1, and then this shortcut, if that is present, if this UCP1 is present, they generate heat. And then the fat burns itself. Great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it does sound great. So you say that, that there's, there's the white fat and there's brown fat. Just, just to really make the distinction clear in my mind, Henning, the, the white fat is on its own almost just like fuel in a tank. Yeah. And it's just sitting there waiting for you to potentially starve yourself for a year in Dundee and for you to burn yourself through that storage. But the brown fat is able to automatically burn itself, thus is almost the fuel and the engine together. Is that right? Would that yeah. be a fair way of describing it? Yeah, I wouldn't say engine. I would say the heater. Okay. Yeah, so it's a fuel and the heater. And why do you need it? Your granddads and my granddads and grandmothers, they evolved to the east of Africa. And then they decided to go for a walkabout on the planet. And they ended up from the hottest places to the coldest places on the planet, including the Arctic. Being in Scotland, you ended close to the Arctic. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a bit closer than East Africa, yeah. And, and I think the physiology that our grannies and granddads got from the East of Africa isn't particularly well suited for Scottish weather. And also in Munich, I think in the winter, I'm sure you had these minus 10 degrees days. And so I think it was quite important to have a system that generates some heat. And there are several ways you can generate. You can run about. That's a very good way of producing heat because your muscle is not 100% turning the energy from the nutrients into contractile energy, so muscle contraction, mechanical energy. But 80% more or less is actually produced as heat. Yeah, so that works very well, but you can't contract your muscles all the time. So you need a system when you're sitting in a chair like we do now. And imagine it would be cold, you would be freezing. And so the body reacts by switching on the brown fat and the brown fat, uh, this UCP1, this protein becomes activated and then the mitochondria essentially burn brown fat to generate heat. And that keeps you reasonably warm. Why is that interesting? 
Well, cold adaptation, on the one hand, it's a physiological process we try to understand, but then they also found that people who have more brown fat, I think there's an association with several diseases like metabolic diseases. So if you have more brown fat and if you can activate it well, I think you have a lower risk of developing uh, things like type 2 diabetes. Yeah, that's fascinating. And yeah, it's something I almost wouldn't even need to ask why it's interesting because it already challenges so many of what my assumptions would have been about fats use in the body. But maybe before we dig in a little bit deeper to these special properties, Henning, um, one of my questions would be, how on earth do you distinguish the difference between white fats and and brown fats within the body without cutting someone open and and checking it for colour? Yeah, so so the different ways, and before I go how you investigate all these different types of fat, I'd like to mention a third type of fat. So there's a white fat, there's a brown fat, and then some bits of white fat can turn what we call beige fat. And so this beige fat is right in the middle between brown fat and white fat. When it's warm, it stays white fat, but when it becomes cold, it can turn a little bit into beige fat. So good question, how do you investigate that actually? So there are different ways. And together with Torsten Gnat and Bonn, we actually developed an assay, how you can investigate whether white fat can turn into beige fat, which then can burn itself and generate heat. So how we do this actually, how we, how we figure out whether we can switch on the white fat and produces shortcut protein uncoupling protein one or this heater protein uncoupling protein one, UCP1. And so what we wanted to know is, so if you exercise, can you change the blood in a way that this blood then stimulates the production of UCP1, so this heating protein, so that the white fat becomes beige fat and produces heat or is capable of producing heat. And so what we did is took the blood of normal people and athletes before and after exercise. We removed all the cells, so we, we had the serum, and then Torsten Gnad put that serum onto human white fat cells. So we had an experiment without poking around with big needles <laughs> in a human. <laughs> we had an experiment on, on taking fat off. And I know some people pay a lot of money to take their fat off with <laughs> liposuction, but that's not what we did. So what we did is we took the human serum at rest of fasted individuals and then post an exercise test, which you can do in the labs. And then we put that blood, uh, the serum on these human fat cells. So we had human serum on human fat cells. And then if the serum contained factors that were stimulating the production of the UCP1, we could simply measure UCP1. And then we knew, hey, this exercise and that guy or girl turned the serum from a non-thermogenic serum, so a serum that doesn't switch on heat production, into a thermogenic serum. And so we did that experiment. So in the normal people, when you took the serum after exercise, in some people we saw no effect. So the UCP1 production by these fat cells was identical with the serum pre-exercise and with the serum post-exercise. And in some people, it actually went up by 30%. And you think, hey, that's already great. But then we did the same experiment in bodybuilders, so natural bodybuilders, in sprinters. And we had a double German champion in the 400-meter sprint who was from Munich. Ah, wonderful. And we also had triathletes and marathon runners, so really good athletes. And so what we found in the athletes was really striking. We found some of the athletes, there was no effect. Yeah, like in, in some of the controls. There were the non-responders. 
But in some of the athletes, when they did the exercise and you took the blood after exercise, extracted the serum and put it on the white fat cells, this UCP1 was absolutely going through the roof. So we call them the super responders. And so for whatever reason, there's a huge variability in the system that some people, when they exercise, the blood becomes super thermogenic. So it really switches on the UCP1 production, this heating protein in the white fat cells, and in other people, nothing happens. And now is, of course, a question, as a molecular bio-exercise physiologist, I really want to find out together with Torsten Gnad and our team, so what are the factors that have this beneficial effect? That's really interesting. I don't even know where to start in terms of unpicking it, but the, the <laughs> thing that strikes me, and, and just, just to clarify, the, the link, it seems, that like you say, particularly in those who respond, whether they're your typical control group or the super responders of, of your athletes, is it the case that when you apply their blood to white fat, that the fat itself changes, if you like, into beige fat or into brown fat? Or is it just that you stimulate the white fat in such a way that it produces similar effects as you would see in beige fat or in brown fat? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So, so the white fat can't turn into brown fat, but the white fat can turn into beige fat. Right. And the key measure of that is a UCP1 exp- uh, expression, as we call it. So, so having more UCP1, because that's a heater protein. Because normally if your white fat is just an energy storage, it has very little of this uncoupling protein one, yeah? because it doesn't burn this energy, it just stores it. And of course, we are the technical university, so we look for technical solutions. So we try to find out maybe if we learn what these factors are in the blood, maybe we can develop a treatment that if you can't be bothered to go to the gym, I just give you that treatment and all of a sudden your fat just burns it's it off. It's burning itself. <laughs> burning itself. Wouldn't that be nice? So this is, of course, an option for metabolic disease. Yeah, when people have too much body fat, it's associated with type 2 diabetes and all sorts of diseases, cardiovascular disease. They all know exercise is good. Yeah, I think there's hardly anyone who doesn't know that exercise is good, but they simply don't exercise. And what can we do with these people? Maybe we can mimic exercise by finding out what the stuff is in the blood that actually switches on this UCP1 and which raises the production of heat. And if you produce heat, you need energy for it, uh, which you know when you look at your bills of your home <laughs> or of your flat. <laughs> yeah, In order to keep it warm in winter, you have to pay much more <laughs> for the energy because you're using more energy to keep your place warm. Yeah. That's really fascinating. And I suppose you're right, it, it, t- particularly for people who are perhaps, what would be the right way of saying it, maybe exercise uh, averse, potentially also for people who are maybe housebound or not that mobile, but would still benefit from this kind of treatment, like you say, to maintain a healthier condition, whether to prevent disease like type 2 diabetes or even just to keep yourself warm, potentially. I mean, there's quite a lot of use you could see in examining the potential of beige fats and, and brown fats. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, me as an exercise physiologist, I hate the idea of taking pills to mimic exercise. <laughs> <laughs> I I rather convince people that there's an additional effect of exercise, which is this thermogenic effect, this heat-producing effect, so that you have a bit of an afterburn after exercise. But even if I hate the idea, I think one potential use of this would be to sort of develop drugs and we are technical universities so we are keen on technical solutions 
maybe if these drugs don't have side effects, I think that could be an effective therapy for an awful lot of diseases to remove risk factors for diseases such as cardiovascular disease or type 2 diabetes. Really, really fascinating. And you're right, there's kind of an inherent understanding that exercise is good for you, but it's a much more complicated biological process than perhaps any of us really realize. Brilliant. I think my next question, Henning, maybe just linking into the wider theme of our series as well is about how potentially brown fat or, or even beige fats, if one were to encourage their their use in the body, if they can give an, an edge in sports, so to speak, if there's any competitive advantage to be had by having the right type of fat deposits. Yeah, so if you break your question down into several sub-questions, so, so one question could be, so how important is fat in the body for exercise? The answer is, even if you're quite skinny, you have a lot of fat in your body. Yeah, so you have more enough than from here, uh, uh, jog all the way to Regensburg and to, I don't know, Hanover and even Hamburg probably. Yeah, so, so most people will have enough fat in their body, even if they're relatively skinny. So uh, it's plentiful and, and you don't gain anything from putting on weight in most sports. Yeah, Maybe in rugby where you need also the mass so that the impulse, if you hit your opponent, uh, if in 150 kilograms, run at 20 kilometers an hour and hit someone else, I think it has a greater effect than if you're just 50 kilograms. Yeah, so, so, so having some mass and some fat can be good in that sport. But for most sports, you want to be relatively lean because you always have enough fat in your body and the carbohydrates make you perform better. Okay, that's white fat. So that's your energy storage. And, and you don't need more because you already have enough for a marathon and more. But the question, is there an advantage of having beige fat or brown fat as an athlete? And I say, good question, John. I don't have the answer for it. And I'm lucky we don't have the answer because that means this is something we should really look at. Yeah, because so this is what we actually do in our project. So we will look at these people and then we will see what is their performance and we see how well does their brown fat function. And then we see is there a relationship? And if there's a relationship, well, that's the first step. I don't just like to describe things. I like to understand these things. So what is then the effect of the brown fat on athletic performance? And what we know is that all sorts of fat produce hormones. They're known as adipokines or in the term of brown fat, it's called butokines. And they're really like, like little messengers. They're shooting around your body and they run to other organs and tell them, do this, do that, and quite often have health benefits. And there's really an awful lot to unravel and to really understand what are the factors coming out of your fat tissue. And if these factors have health benefits, have fitness benefits or performance benefits. So it's a great question. I don't have the answer. Not and, yet. And it's good to have no answer in science because it means there's a field in front of you where you can get your teeth in and, and to try to find out whether there is something going on and, and what the hell is going on in this system. Absolutely. And maybe on that, Henning, my penultimate question, and I think you've already touched upon it with butokines, is yeah, what, what are the next steps for, for your all-star team of academics from across uh, the different universities What's next in the project? Where does it go from here? Yeah, so uh, for our particular project and, and, and for the whole consortium is really trying to understand the thermogenic adipose tissue from all angles. So there's a lot of study, and I hope you've got an idea from this podcast that, that it's not just, hey, there's a bit of fat, what can we do about <laughs> it? What's, what's the point? 
fat is a really important bit of your body. It does an awful lot of to your health. We are the exercise experts. So the first question we're having is, exercise is not exercise because there are different forms of exercise. So what we will do in the first experiment, we will compare a bout of low-intensity, long-duration exercise. So we make our subjects cycle for an hour at moderate intensity. Yeah, like if you're a bit tired, you go to the gym, can't be bothered to... <laughs> <laughs> put out 400 watts, yeah, you yeah. just put it on an easy setting and you cycle for one hour. The second bout of exercise is in high-intensity interval training. So what sport and exercise research by Martin Gibala and others has shown is that actually you can get a lot of the benefits of a one-hour session if you do a couple of really hard intervals, maybe 20-second or 30-second intervals. You do a couple of those and within five minutes some of the benefits that you get from cycling for one hour, you get in five minutes if you do this high-intensity interval training. So our subjects will also do a bout of this. And the third thing is a completely different type of exercise, weightlifting, or we call it resistance exercise, because you exercise against the higher resistance. You lift heavy weights. The third experiment the subjects will do, and every subject will do all three types of exercise, and then again, what we did in our first experiment of the preliminary data is we take the blood before and after, and then we put that blood again on the fat cells because we want to know which type of exercise conditions the blood in a way that it really becomes thermogenic, which works best. Because I want to tell you in five years' time, John, if you want to switch on your thermogenic adipose tissue, do HIIT training or do resistance training or sit on a bike low intensity for one hour. Please, and then, please, Henning, if any not hit training, I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> I did one too many of those in front of the television during lockdown. <laughs> I can imagine. So that's the first experiment. And we will also measure how these subjects respond to cold. So we, we, we see what we see in the Petri dish with the white set, fat cells, whether it corresponds what we see with energy metabolism when we really cool the body down. So you're not shivering, but you become cool. And the natural response of the body is to generate heat via the mechanisms I have described. The second experiment, then people will do 12 weeks of training, so not just one bout of exercise, but we want to see how 12 weeks of training change the fat tissue, and we actually take biopsies of white fat. So we want to study how that changes, and again, we want to understand, so how can you change the system by training for 12 weeks? And then the third part of our research project is we then have methods together with partners in Weinstefan and elsewhere in the consortium to try to find out what are the mechanisms. Because as you know, I'm a molecular exercise physiologist. I hate just to describe things. I try to understand how this works. And we really want to open up that black box and really understand, so, so what's going in there? What are the factors that actually explain that if you do this type of exercise and this guy or girl, that then this switches on UCP production and heat production. And this is the aim of our project. I'm really looking forward to doing it. Fascinating stuff. Lots to do by the sounds of it as well, Henning. Plenty, plenty to go on in the coming months and I suppose years of, of this project. So wish you much success with that. Thank you. And my final question, if I may, Henning, is is just as, as ever, if our listeners were keen to find out more, you know, whether it be about exercise biology or the thermal properties of fat, this thermal genesis we've been discussing today, 
yeah, where, where could they go? What kind of resources are out there for them? Yeah, so one resource is, so if you just want to find out what we do, we have a website, uh, Sport Biologie or Exercise Biology Munich. Actually, we also record some podcasts on topics related to this. So it's Die Sport Biologen and these podcasts are in German because there are lots of exercise physiology podcasts in English. So we thought, well, we have our niche and, and we cover uh, Germany. So if you're really into it, I have this textbook, Molecular Exercise Physiology, and together with a colleague in Oslo and a colleague at Liverpool, we are actually writing the second version now, so we've just submitted it. And it's a complicated topic, but we try to communicate very clearly, so we try to avoid this jargon and Fremdwörter, which some people use in their science writing. So, so we have the feeling that the science is complicated enough, so we don't need to make <laughs> it more complicated. So we try to straight shoot, have short sentences, clear language to try to communicate these quite often fascinating but complicated processes that we break them down into things that you can actually understand. And so if you're interested in this whole field of molecular exercise physiology as much as I am, it, it really keeps me fascinated, uh, even though I'm for so many years in the field, where you can have a look at our book, Molecular Exercise Physiology. It gets good ratings on Amazon. <laughs> I've paid them all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how, no, many actually, how many sponsors? I haven't told anyone to put a review in. It's <laughs> just one of these Scottish jokes. <laughs> and I apologize for it. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. Well, Henning, I think I'd be very happy and we will, of course, link on and I can definitely recommend uh, your series of podcasts uh, very in-depth. I mean, there's many, many topics that go beyond, indeed, what we've discussed today. So we'll link to those in our programme notes as well as to your highly rated textbook. I'm looking forward to, to that second edition, uh, hopefully in the near future. But until then, thank you very much indeed. It's been great having you. Yeah, thank you very much, John, for asking me all these interesting questions and I'm really learning about how to do a proper podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. And definitely, we'll be in touch to find out uh, what else is happening in the world of exercise biology going forward. Thank you very much, John. That was The Competitive Edge, a Toon podcast for lifelong learning. To find out more, subscribe to our series or check out our website for further resources.